It's a joy for us to have this opportunity to gather one more time that we may continue to reference the scriptures um, and therefore we thank God for congregating us here this morning. Uh, we continue with the lesson that we've been on. Uh, the title of this lesson really um, is taken from our head scripture in Luke chapter number 24 and verse 32 and I'll read it again. It is there in our notes, Luke 24 and verse 32. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? And this is the conversation that these two disciples we've been looking at had. And by the time they are coming to this point, we know that there are almost like... Um, 16 verses in between from the last time we read about them because when they began, Jesus was with them but they did not recognize him. And that is the path that we've been on. And so by way of just recapping what we did three weeks ago, we saw Abraham's handling of his realities. And we did see in that lesson that he did not start on the right note. And that um, this he did because when there was famine, he made a unilateral decision to go down to Egypt. And this we did see was not sanctioned by God. This was him walking apart from faith. And I'm sure that we can relate with him. And by so doing, we did see that he swallowed an Egyptian prescription. And I wonder, since we had our lesson part five, how much of this Egyptian prescription have we vomited out of our lives. And by doing so, he allowed his reality, that of the famine at the time, to cause him to lose fellowship with God. We see this because there was no recorded conversation with the Lord from the time he went down to Egypt until he returned. And it was not until he separated from Lot that then we see God speaking to him. And I'm sure that that is very instructive for us. And faced with the reality of passing time, we saw Sarai, Abraham's wife, improving on the Egyptian prescription by suggesting an Egyptian process, that is, raising a child through Hagar. And this resulted in an Egyptian product in the name of Ishmael. And by doing so, yet again, Abraham allowed his reality to cause him to manufacture a substitute to God's promise of a son. And if we remember, even though Abraham may have suggested that God would use Ishmael instead, God gave him a very clear no because the plans and purposes of God were to be accomplished through Isaac. And so we know that Egypt is a type of the world. And when we go down to Egypt to handle our realities, we are making a choice to turn to the world for solutions to resolve them. And I don't know how much of this is true about us, but I know how many times I have gone down to Egypt. But we thank God that he's bringing us a lesson just but to help us to put matters into the right perspective. Egyptian wisdom we saw is a wisdom of the world. It is wisdom that is from below. And we know that from James chapter number 3, verse 14 to 15. Egyptian wisdom is wisdom that is logical. It is wisdom that is according to the traditions of men. And all this, God would warn us not to depend on it. But thankfully, Abraham did not remain there. If anything, he matured over time. And when he was tested after the birth of Isaac, we saw a response from him that was not witnessed in the previous examples. We saw him responding almost immediately that when God said that he wanted him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, the next verse tells us very early in the morning. And dear friends, that is a place that God would desire for us to be. I don't know how we are faring as far as that is concerned. And we did see in that lesson that our realities are avenues for testing. And God would invite us, even this morning, to trust him in the midst of our realities. Do we have realities this morning 
I am sure that we do. God knows our realities. He knows them, dear friends. He knows the realities that you and I go through that the next person may have no clue about. But be that as it may, God invites us to come to that place of maturity in our faith race that no reality, regardless of its magnitude, distracts us from the pursuit of the kingdom, whether that reality is resolved or otherwise. You know, I see in this lesson that we did that God is bringing us to that point where the pursuit of the kingdom is uppermost in our day-to-day -day basis. And you know, because realities are avenues for testing, there will always be that ever-present temptation to do what Abraham and Sarah did, um, that he would be warning us against this morning. And therefore, dear friends, even as we sit and even as we would live and continue with that which our brother Johnson was referring to as a case of this life, I pray that we will remember that God is taking us somewhere, somewhere where we will have that unmatched resolve to continue seeking the kingdom, regardless of the realities that will come our way. The truth of the matter is that I cannot stand here and promise you that our realities will be resolved overnight. I'll be lying to us. The truth of the matter is that we will continue to face realities as far as we are on this side of the judgment seat of Christ. But I pray that regardless of those realities, that we would make that resolve to continue to seek the kingdom. Jesus, we saw in that last lesson, described his two disciples as foolish and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. And so that is what we did last time. Today, by the grace of God, in the next few minutes, we want to look at Luke 24, verse 26. And Jesus speaking to his disciples, he asked them this question. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And of course, he's referring to what the disciples had alluded to because they had described a suffering Messiah and we did see that is not what they expected of the Messiah. And this phrase in Greek expects an affirmative answer. In other words, Christ had to suffer these things before he could enter into his glory. And the Greek word for ought is a word that means it is or it was necessary as binding. It behooved him. It was a must. It was needful. And this word therefore means that it is an obligation out of intrinsic necessity or inevitability. And the Amplified uh, Version renders this verse this way. Was it not necessary and essentially fitting that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer all these things before entering into his glory, his majesty and splendor? In other words, it was necessary. It was essentially fitting for him to go through suffering. Contextually, in order to fulfill perfectly the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, first, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. And Luke uses this word approximately 19 times in his gospel. In Luke 9, 21 to 22, Jesus speaking, he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. In Luke 17, 25, he tells them, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. In Luke 24, verse 6 to 7, which I will read, when these two men appear to the women, they tell them, he is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And later in verse 46 of this same chapter, then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary 
for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. That was it about the Christ. He had to suffer these things. And you see, we also have an example of that which is binding to all of us here this morning. And that is our appearance at the judgment seat of Christ. Because Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians 5.10, uses the same Greek word for ought, in that he said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And therefore, dear friends, we can rest assured that because of having believed on the finished work of Jesus on the cross, as a matter of necessity, we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It is not subject to debate. It's not subject to a vote. That is how God has declared, and therefore it must be so. In asking this rhetoric question to his disciples, Christ is revealing to them that his suffering was not a product of luck or the lack of it. It was not a mistake, neither was it an error. His suffering was God's predetermined plan in his eternal chambers for him. In Acts chapter number 2, Peter speaking says, Men of Israel, this, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. In other words, this was not a random event in the life of Christ. God had already predetermined it. He had the foreknowledge of it. And you see, for many a Jew who had believed Jesus is the Christ, including his disciples, his suffering in the hands of the religious leaders was inconceivable. If anything, they must have expected that he would, he would either resist or thwart their attempts to execute him. After all, they had witnessed his power in the signs that he had performed. One that we have studied about is Peter. He could not fathom a suffering Christ. So that in Matthew 16, after Jesus had told them that he must go to Jerusalem, Peter could hear none of it. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. You know, in today's language, Peter would be saying, Over my dead body, you're not going to die. And I'm sure that he meant well, but we know that he was rebuked for saying that. And yet, as we have said, his suffering was permitted by God to fulfill his predetermined purpose. In Acts chapter number 4, 27 to 28, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. But you see, because the eyes of these two disciples and the Jews at large were not open, they could not comprehend this. I say this because this determined purpose was recorded in the Old Testament scriptures that were available to the Jews. In Acts 3.18 we are told, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. That is to say, the Jew was not to be excused for not having known that Christ would suffer because it was in the Old Testament scriptures that they heard. And one place that we looked at in one of these lessons is Isaiah 53, and we shall read verse 2, the second part of it, and connect it with verse 3. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Isaiah is writing about the Christ. And in our previous lessons, we saw the numerous times that Jesus told his disciples of his impending suffering. We have just read Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. That was it about Jesus. And therefore, as he asked them this question, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? He is telling them, as a matter of fact, his suffering was foretold in their Old Testament scriptures. It was a matter of necessity. And you know, dear friends, if we look at the life of Jesus, each one of us who has decided and made a decision to be his follower, let me submit to us that there is an invitation that has been extended to all of us. And that is to suffer for his sake. Paul, writing in Philippians 1, 29-30, would remind us this morning, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. You know, this is a scripture that is not common in Christendom today. People don't want to be told about suffering. And even when suffering is brought forth, it is not in relation to what we are learning about Christ. And by extension, this that Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. I doubt whether any one of us in the past has heard that this would be in a manner of speaking the word of the year. I don't remember being told that this would be the year to suffer for his sake because this is not what the church wants to be told and yet this is what God would have us to know. And that word suffer in Greek means to experience a sensation or impression, usually painful. It is to feel. It is that passion to suffer, to vex. And I submit to us that we enter the kingdom through the gate of suffering. We have been on this scripture, I think, in the recent past, as pastor has been teaching from Acts chapter number 14, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many trials, tribulations, sorry, enter the kingdom of God. And therefore, if any one of us this morning, and I believe all of us, have a desire to enter the kingdom, let me submit to us that yes, many tribulations will come our way. We must go through them. And you know, Christ left us an example, an example that we are to emulate, and this is a lifestyle of suffering. Peter, in 1 Peter 2.21, would remind us this morning, for to this you are called. It is almost like what Paul writes in Philippians 1.29, that for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So Peter says, for to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Dear friends, we are also to suffer following this same example. But you know, Peter continues to just put this suffering into context, that our suffering as believers must be for doing good and not evil. Because in the earlier two verses of First Peter 2, Peter says, for, to, for this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it? If when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. The truth of the matter is that it is possible for us to suffer, but not for doing good. Peter continues with this narrative in 1 Peter 3, verse 13 to 17. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He continues in chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Does it not remind us about the thieves that were crucified on the cross with Jesus? They were not being uh, subjected to that crucifixion for doing good. If anything, they deserved it. And one of them actually acknowledged as such, but not so with Jesus. Are we suffering this morning? Then my question to us is, are we suffering for doing good or are we suffering for doing evil? And the Greek word for suffering refers to something that is undergone. It refers to a hardship or pain. Subjectively, it is an emotion. It is an influence. It is an affliction. However, we must not misconstrue it to mean that our lives are to be characterized by pain, by agony, by poverty, by sickness and the like. Although this could be part of it, the contextual meaning of this word, suffering, is the pain, the hardship, the affliction that we undergo in the flesh as we choose to starve it of its appetites and its desires. Let me just repeat that we must not misconstrue suffering to mean that our lives are to be characterized by pain, by agony, by poverty, by sickness and the like. Although this could be part of it, the contextual meaning of this word suffering is a pain, the hardship, the affliction that we undergo in the flesh as we choose to starve the flesh of its appetites, its desires. And so even as we are learning about the battles that are won on the hill, I'm sure that we are coming to that point of being instructed about Amalek, the man of the flesh. And the reality of the matter is that together with the world and the devil, they have appetites that if we continue to feed them, we can be assured that we shall miss participation in the coming kingdom. Christ suffered in the flesh. And so must we, because Peter continues in 1 Peter 4 verse 1 to 2, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Christ equally was not only one who suffered in the flesh, but he was put to death in the flesh, and so must we. Because Peter continues to remind us in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. In other words, we are to deal with the old man. You know the interesting thing as we have looked at this lesson up to this point, the same Peter who at the beginning seemed, you know, as though he could not understand why Christ needed to suffer, has written extensively about suffering, what manner of transformation this would be. And it was in his suffering that Christ chose to subordinate his will 
to that of the Father at the cross. And in this we are told in Hebrews that he learned obedience. Reading Hebrews 5 verse 78, who in the days, speaking of Christ, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And I'm sure that it will not be any different for us even today. And maybe we are asking, why must I suffer? And that is a good question, because suffering is a precursor to rulership. The suffering of Christ, as we have seen, was not a happenstance. It was not random. It was purposeful. It was a precursor to his glory and the path to bring many sons to glory. The writer of Hebrews, chapter number 2, verse 9 and 10, would remind us, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, literally, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might test death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect, complete, through sufferings. And you know, in God's economy, and this is an invitation for us to borrow from the wisdom from above, in God's economy, suffering precedes glory. In other words, there can be no glory without suffering. Peter, the same Peter in 1 Peter 1, verse 9 to 10, continues to write and to remind us, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the salvation of the soul, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That any time you open the scriptures and you find glory, there must be suffering. And maybe we are asking beyond why suffering, of which I hope we have answered, why glory? Because glory is always associated with rulership. I'm sure we know what the psalmist in Psalm 104 verse 1 to 2 would write to us, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. And that, of course, that light is actually speaking to us about glory. And John, the revelator, so to speak, witnessed the glory of Christ when he writes in Revelation, Chapter number 1, verse 12 to 17. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and guarded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I don't know whether we can stretch our imagination to just imagine what John is writing about, even as he would describe the glory that he saw on that day, even as he was taken ahead of time. And you can imagine when people tell us that they went to heaven, they saw God, and they came back, 
um, you know, when you contrast that with what John is writing here, then you and I can come to one conclusion that that must not be true. And I hope that that is something that we will continue to, you know, uh, come to a good understanding of. And so why this glory? It is because glory is associated with rulership. And we know from the beginning that God created man to rule in the place of Satan. And to do this, God created man in his image and his likeness. Taking us back to Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And one facet of God's image and likeness is that he is covered with glory. And being covered with glory, so was man in his creation, awaiting the garments of splendor and majesty, depending on the outcome of the test of obedience. Adam and his wife, we know, were covered in glory. And it is for this reason that they were not ashamed, as we would read in Genesis 2.25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. It is because they had a covering of glory. But having failed the test of obedience, man lost his covering of glory. And man became totally naked. In Genesis 3.7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. We have seen in the past that English is a limited language. For anyone reading this in English, they would almost imagine that the word for naked in Genesis 2.25 is the same one in Genesis 3.7. But I hope that we remember that two different Hebrew words are used here. In Genesis 2.25, the word for naked means partially naked. But the word for naked in Genesis 3 is a word that means totally naked. The man was now devoid of that covering of glory. And you see, God's purpose for creating man, even this morning, has not changed. He therefore calls us into his own kingdom and glory. And therefore, even as you would read about glory, let us remember that it is, it is associated with rulership. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2, 10 to 12, would write to the church in Thessalonica and even to us this morning, you are witnesses and God also. How devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Not only does God call us to his own kingdom and glory, but we have seen he calls us to suffer. To suffer for what? For the same kingdom and for the same purpose for which he created us. Paul almost repeats the same in his second epistle to the church in Thessalonica. In chapter number 2, verse 13 to 14, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you. Brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise him that he has called us into his own kingdom and glory, that he has called us by this gospel of the Christ for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. If anything, God is inviting us to partake of the coming kingdom as partakers of Jesus Christ. And going by last week's lesson by pastor, this is the greatest offer that God could give to man. And I pray that we shall strive to receive it. Every believer, I pray that this will be all of us, approve that the judgment seat of Christ 
will receive the redemption of their bodies, being enswathed with glory, making it possible for them to rule with Christ, as we would read from Romans 8.23. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. This adoption is the adoption of sons that we have read in Hebrews chapter number 2 verse 10. And I pray that we will continue to groan within ourselves even as we eagerly wait for this to be done or to be um, bestowed on us on that day. And therefore, dear friends, suffering through the trials that we undergo should not strike us as being strange, as being strange, sorry. The most unfortunate thing, dear friends, is that anytime suffering comes my way, sometimes I act as though I'm shocked. But you know, when we read this scripture, it is very clear that suffering must not strike us as being strange. It is in this suffering that we partake of the suffering of Christ and subsequent glory. The same Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Maybe this is a scripture I need to put as a wallpaper myself. The Amplified Version renders this verse 12 this way. Beloved, do not be amazed and bewildered at the fiery ordeal which is taking place to test your quality. As though something strange, unusual, and alien to you and your position were befalling you. I pray that I will continue to remember this same verse even as we continue. It is only in suffering that we will partake of glory. This same Peter, in 1 Peter 5 verse 1, writes and says, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Sounds to me like Peter is saying, I have been a witness of these sufferings, and therefore I will be a partaker of this glory. But you know, dear friends, the truth of the matter is that many would want to be a partaker of this glory minus the sufferings of Christ. But it cannot happen. Don't we remember what uh, Paul writes in Philippians 3, I think from verse 10, 11, there about, you know, he talks about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And that is the same mind that we are to have. And in times of suffering, I write, I mean, in times of suffering, I pray that we will be encouraged this morning that our attitude ought to be like that of Paul, who says that it is light and it is for a moment. And this is in comparison to the far more exceeding and age-lasting weight of glory. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You know, as we are reading these scriptures, I'm just asking myself, do we sometimes feel that the afflictions we go through are light? Maybe not. Do we sometimes feel as though those afflictions are for a moment? Maybe not. But you see, this is a place where we choose to put on the lens of the scripture, not the realities that we go through because the reality of the matter is that because this is what God's word says, then it must be true. It doesn't matter our opinions concerning those same afflictions. And I'm just thinking to myself, maybe next time we hear someone going through suffering, 
Out of love we should tell them that number one, it is not strange, but number two, that it is light, and number three, it is but for a moment. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5.10, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, and strengthen, and settle you. In Romans 8.18, we are told, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And Kenneth West, in his translation, renders this same scripture this way, For I have come to a reasoned conclusion that the sufferings of the present season are of no weight in comparison to the glory which is about to be revealed upon us. You know, when you remember that we shall rule with Christ for a whole a thousand years, then our present sufferings pale in comparison to the weight of the glory that shall be revealed in us. And I pray that that will come to us as an encouragement. And therefore, not only are we to view those sufferings that we go through as being lightened for a moment, but we also to view suffering as universal, but only among those who are kingdom-seeking believers. Because the same Peter continues to write in 1 Peter 5, 9, resist him, speaking of the devil, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And it feels to me like the God of this age, through deception, brings us a narrative that when we go through suffering, we must be the only ones going through it. But based on the evidence of this word that we have read, the same sufferings that we face are experienced by our brotherhood in the world. That means that any kingdom-seeking believer, wherever they are in this world, they go through the same sufferings. And therefore, be encouraged this morning that you are not alone. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And therefore, dear friends, I pray that we will find encouragement this morning, that if we are going through suffering, that you are not alone, and that that which we are facing, even as with these temptations, is common to man. And as we bring this lesson to a close, I submit to us that there is a correct response when we undergo suffering, and that correct response is patient endurance. God in his mercy has provided his instruction as to how we are to suffer. It then becomes a matter of faith on our part to either believe this instruction and thereby receive approval on that day or fail to believe and thereby receive condemnation. It is just one or the other. Suffering in faith is suffering in patient endurance. Suffering in any other way is doing so apart from faith, and there is no grace provided for such. The faith race that we are on incorporates suffering, and thus we are to embrace patient endurance. The writer of Hebrews, chapter number 12, verse 1, reminds us again this morning, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance, literally, with patient endurance, the race that is set before us. Our patient endurance must have the end in view. James chapter number 1, verse 2 to 4, and verse 12. James would write to us this morning, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, literally patient endurance, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
And in verse 12 he says, Blessed is the man who patiently endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And later in chapter 5 verse 11, James continues to write, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure, who patiently endure. You have heard of the perseverance, the patient endurance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 4-5, Paul would write to us this morning, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience, literally patient endurance, and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you patiently endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. And therefore our suffering contextually has to be in line with that end. It has to be associated with the kingdom, nothing else. Any other form of suffering is of no moment. And you know in this last two or three weeks, we have labored so much on these two people, Caleb and Joshua, and I'll just draw them in, even by way of bringing this lesson to a close, that having returned from spying the land of promise, Caleb and Joshua were persuaded to go and enter the land, but we know the other ten were persuaded otherwise. As we would read Numbers 13, verse 30 to 31, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And you see, because of these responses, God declared only Caleb and Joshua would enter the land while the rest of the Israelites would spend a whole 40 years, an entire period of time, in the wilderness. And reading portions of Numbers 14, I'll read verse 30. Except for Caleb, God speaking says, Except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. And in verse 33 to 34, And your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely forty years, and you shall know my rejection. And you know, if you study this passage and look at the two responses that came, this 40 years was a period, you know, of bearing the brunt of the infidelity by the Israelites. And this wilderness period for Caleb and Joshua was a time of waiting. And you know, it made me ask the question, this period of wilderness, is it a period of waiting for me? Or is it a period of suffering, the brunt of our infidelity? Could it be, dear friends, that this morning, in this wilderness journey that we are on, that some of us are bearing the brunt of our unfaithfulness, and some of us are waiting for entrance into the kingdom? Caleb and Joshua patiently waited to enter the land. And these scriptures, I'm sure, are common to us in Joshua 14, 10 to 11. And now, Caleb speaking, says, Behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, here I am, this day, 85 years old. As yet, I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me 
just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. And based on his persuasion, Caleb received his inheritance. In verse 13 of Joshua 14, And Joshua blessed him, and gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh as an inheritance. Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Joshua received his inheritance. In Joshua 19 verse 49, when they had made an end of dividing the land as an inheritance, according to their borders, the children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. We began by reading Luke 24, verse 26, a rhetoric question that Jesus asked his disciples. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And I wonder whether this is a question we want to ask ourselves. Ought not you and I to suffer before we can enter into his glory? Dear friends, suffering is part and parcel of this race of the faith. And therefore I pray that even as God would allow situations to come our way, that we will respond in patient endurance. Shall we pray? Our gracious Father and our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you. And we bless you, dear Father, because of your word. You have reminded us in Isaiah that your word does not return to you void. But Lord, it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. And Lord, we pray that we shall be the good soil Christians who hear the word of the kingdom, understand it. And Lord, with patience, bear fruit, fruit that will remain. Lord, we thank you that we continue to look at these two disciples that you open their eyes. And Lord, one facet of opening their eyes, dear God, is in them understanding that Christ had to suffer before entering his glory. And Lord, it is the same for us as we continue in this race of the faith. Lord, we have to suffer. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom. And dear Father, we might be in the midst of tribulations that, Lord, we don't even know how to express to another, but Lord, you know. I pray that, dear Father, we shall embrace the persuasion that, Lord, this suffering is light. It is for a moment. And that, Lord, it is universal among kingdom-seeking believers. The Lord, you shall help us not to complain. You have taught us about the types in 1 Corinthians 10 that the children of Israel, their experiences are given to us. So that, Lord, we should not complain. Lord, we have the tendency to complain. I pray that you help us. I pray that, dear God, we shall not murmur. I pray that, God, we shall avail ourselves, dear Father, to be perfected by you. And therefore, God, we thank you for the graces that you would provide for us. The Lord, the wilderness journey will be a time of patiently waiting for the kingdom. We thank you, God, and pray that even as we continue with the week, the Lord, you will help us to go back to this lesson like the Bereans and allow you, dear Father, to continue to reveal to us new things and old things, dear God. Even as you prepare us, dear Father, for that day that will come, that we shall stand before you. The Lord, ours will be the desire to hear only one thing, those wonderful words of our colleagues. Well done, good and faithful servant. We bless you, Lord, and we honor you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.